0: Hey, uh, if you have your Bible here, uh, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to continue in our uh, study of the book of Romans. It's been so, so good, and uh, I've enjoyed it so much. And I just want to make an appeal here tonight, or today, to uh, come back tonight. And we would love to have you at Block Party. Block Party is like our first kind of big get-together of the year, and we won't really have another one until Thanksgiving rolls around. And so, man, we'd love to have you come out tonight. We have a lot of fun. Like I said, there's a bounce house, volleyball tournament, et cetera, et cetera. We have a lot of fun. And uh, we we would love to have you come back. And so this is the first time you've ever set foot in this building. Man, please come back and visit us tonight at five o'clock. You know, we sat down as a staff. We said, what would be the hottest time of the hottest day of the year? Five o'clock on August the 20th. Let's do it then. No, actually, we're trying to get a little bit of an earlier start this year because you know, with the turnaround coming, we would like to see our home group ministry get off the ground a little bit earlier. We're kind of gonna kind of sprint with home group ministry to the first of October. And you know, we really want that to be a part of your life. And so that's gonna be happening, kind of getting started in earnest today, which we're gonna talk about a little bit today. But here we go. All of us here today, we have something in common. <clears throat> All of us want to change. We want to grow. We want to better ourselves, whether it's an area of you know, food or finances, marriage, parenting, work habits, exercise, spiritual disciplines, whatever it might be. We all know the right things to do in these areas, but you know, just finding the will, the strength, and the grace to do those things with consistency, we ask ourselves, why can't I do better? Why can't I be better? You know, why can't I get better And I could go on and on with this sentence structure right here. We all could fill in these blanks. I know that I should, but instead I, boom. All right. And it's so incredible when you read your Bible, you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles of Jesus, in a moment of just bare-knuckle honesty, in a letter to Timothy, this man he thought of as a son, he said this. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners rebels, and I am the worst of them. When he wrote this, he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and he said, I am the worst of sinners. You know, God is something, you know, we you know when you, when you make a campfire, the closer you get to the fire, the more you feel the heat. And that's really, really true in our Christian experience is that the, as we get older, as we mature in Christ, the closer we get to the Lord, it just seems like the closer we get to him, the more we feel the heat and we realize our own sinfulness and brokenness. And so Paul, Paul is affirming the struggle that all of us have in this battle with sin. The struggle is real. And this struggle with sin, it can go anywhere on the spectrum from irritating to devastating. Uh, there's a good friend of ours who was telling us this past week that the worship pastor at her church, it's a megachurch and uh, he was, uh, found out that he was unfaithful to his wife for the second time. You know, the first time this happened, his church uh, agreed to a restoration plan and they worked through it. They got him back in you know, back in front of the folks. But the second time they said, we're parting ways with you. And then so did his wife. Melanie showed me a post on Instagram the other day. It was a beautiful young woman uh, with a bunch of other really, you know, cute young ladies around her. And uh, so they were having her baby shower. And she said, do you remember this girl? And I said, no. She said, this is, Hope and Hannah, my daughter's, Hope and Hannah's friend. And she's very pregnant. She's just recently married. She found out her new husband was unfaithful to her. Her husband left her for another woman. And now her friends are throwing her a baby shower. And you know, she works at a church down in South Texas. Ephesians chapter six, the Apostle Paul says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And then having done everything, everything. To stand firm, stand firm. God's Word tells us, Christians, we cannot drop our guard in our struggle with sin. We don't need to deny the war that's raging within us. Pretend it's not there. Try to hide it from everyone. Paul has been there. He tells us. He understands. And he understands better than anyone. We were born into the fight. The devil is the ruler of this world that we live in at present, and you and I are living behind enemy lines. And I want you to think about this with me today. When the battle is over, the smoke clears, and the dust settles, will you still be standing? If you keep going the way that you're going 25, 35, 50 years from now, will you still be standing? The Apostle Paul, the last written thing we have from him, he said this, The glorious fight that God gave me, I have fought. The course that I was set, I have finished, and I have kept the faith. And so our title today is Winning the War Within. How do you win this war in the struggle with sin? This is such a powerful passage, both theologically and philosophically. Romans chapter 7 is so personal because Paul is going to give you and I an insight into his own life And he's giving us the view of his inner battle with sin. It's like he's just cracking open his chest and showing you his heart and saying, this is who I really am. Romans chapter seven. Here we go. Starting at verse verse nine. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life inside of me and I died. And I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Look at verse 11. This is remarkable. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. You know, when when we say, thou shalt not steal, what's the first thing that our flesh wants to do? Steal something. All right? So the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Now, did that which was good become death to me by no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, It produced death in me through what was good, so that that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature or my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I got to tell you, that is a remarkable passage of Scripture. It really is. Number one, it's so insightful. Number two, it's so honest. It's so, so honest. And I appreciate it so much. You notice all the verbs are in the present tense. Paul is talking about his life situation at that moment. I had a conversation with my mom years ago. This is back when Bill Clinton was president and the whole thing was going on with Monica Lewinsky and the infidelity that was going on there. And man, mom was hopping mad about it. She really was. And she began harping on our president for being sinful and immoral. She said, he's a man of weak character. And I said, mom, I agree with you. Totally. I really do But, you know, there's a preacher you watch on cable TV who did the same thing. She said, well, we have to pray for the men in the ministry. The devil's attacking them. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) mom's logic is that, you know, Satan is personally attacking preachers, but presidents, he's leaving alone, you know, something like that. And that reasoning, by the way, has saved many a crooked preacher, you know, telling the congregation, the devil made me do it. Amen, preacher, he did. We forgive you, you know, that kind of thing. Well, which is it? Do people sin because it's their fault or is it because it's the devil's fault? The answer is yes, all right? When we talk about the war within, we're talking about the conflict of enormous powers. Notice Paul, he personifies sin in this passage as an adversary that's a living entity with the characteristics of personhood. So sin is not some metaphysical force or energy in the world, but we are engaged in a war with a living and personal enemy, the powers above us. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Paul said, in the past you lived the way the world lives, following the ruler of the evil powers that are above the earth. Now, we are not left defenseless. All right, I love that song that Michael led us in a moment ago. You we are fighting a battle that Jesus has already won. But it's a paradox, isn't it? We're fighting a battle, but it's already been won. But in Christ, we are granted the strength and the resources and the wisdom to be free. We are under attack, but we have the responsibility to defend ourselves with the resources that Jesus has put in our disposal. As believers in Christ, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, you have an entirely new nature, new motivations, new attitudes, new values, and new strength. Ephesians 4, Paul said, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on your new nature. This new nature was created to be like God. And so just to think about that for a moment. When you ask Jesus to be your Savior, you're given a new nature. And this, this new principle, this new dynamic of life is there's something like God within your very soul. But as long as we're living in this world, our sin nature, our flesh is going to go to war with that new nature that is like God. And this is a struggle. This is a struggle. As sin continues to assault our flesh, we are in a war with sin. Look at verses 9 through 11 for a moment. Just kind of glance at that. When Paul talks about the sin that was supposed to bring life actually brought death. You know, The Apostle Paul is a model for all of us, by the way. He is so honest about his struggles and we want to be open and honest. You know, if we're going to have life on life ministry with one another, we have to be honest about our struggles. The struggle is so real. And now what he was saying was to his shock and dismay, God's law not only exposed the sin in his life, but then it energized the sin in his life. And his battle in particular was with covetousness. He could not bring himself to be content with what God had given him, whether it was his stuff, I just need more stuff, I need his stuff, or his station in life. You know, he was such an ambitious young man. He tells us in the book of Philippians that he surpassed all his peers in his white-hot ambition to be a political and religious leader in his country. But he says that the more he tried not to covet, the more jealous, the more envious, the more discontent He became. And so what's happening here is sin is manipulating, Satan is manipulating the law, and he's using it to energize, to awaken, and to stir rebellion in the human heart, which he does with all of us, all of us. Yeah, I was talking to a man. One time he came to see me, and he was trying to save his marriage after an affair. And this guy was a great guy. I'd known him for a long time. A straight arrow. Beautiful family. Probably never even had a parking ticket. You know, one of those kind of guys. And he couldn't believe it had happened. He kept saying, Les, I just can't believe this happened to me. And I said, well, man, what happened? He said, I began to text a colleague at work. At first it was professional. Then it became friendly. And then it became romantic. And then one day she crossed the Rubicon. She said, I would just love to be able to spend one night with you. And she knew she could say that because she knew he would never do it. He was too good a man. And for weeks, she would text him and tell him how good he was. You're too good a husband. You're too good a Christian. You would never do something like that. And he was shocked to discover the more this woman told him how good he was, the more he wanted to prove that he wasn't. And it was like she knew exactly what buttons to push to awaken the rebellious nature in his heart. And I would dare say it wasn't her, but it was the princes of the power of the air that were doing it. One of the most shocking aspects of our our lives as human beings is the deceptiveness of sin. You know, as Paul says, sin deceived me. And everyone who's been gripped by sin understands this. There's always, always, an element of deception to every sin. In Titus chapter three, Paul said, we were once foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to lusts and pleasures. Now, sin deceives us in so many ways. Things he's like, well, you know, it's not that bad. Lots of people do it. God's gonna forgive me anyway. Or it's not really a sin. You know, this group over here says it is, but that group over there says it's not. Once Paul was deceived into sinning, he says, then sin used the law as a lethal weapon against my soul. And the very commandment that should have brought me life instead brought me death. And you notice he says the same thing three different ways in verse 11, 12, and 13, that sin used God's law to put me to death. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? And he says, no, but sin proved itself to be utterly sinful, like depraved, twisted, evil, and wicked. By the way, it manipulated God's good law to put me to death. I got a picture up here I want you to see of Ulysses Grant watching a great documentary on him a few weeks ago. He's an incredible military genius. From a very humble beginning back in Missouri, he graduated West Point, but then he fell on very hard times. In fact, when the Civil War broke out, he was selling firewood trying to support his family. He had been through two or three business failures. Now he enjoyed a cigar every now and then, but he never could afford to smoke very many. He just didn't have much money. Well, the Civil War broke out and he volunteered. And he was given command of a regiment. And what, they, what he discovered was that he was an amazing leader of men and a military genius. Now, out of the East was called the Eastern Theater of the Civil War, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. There was no military leadership. And Robert E. Lee was just cleaning house out there. And, and they kept losing war after battle after battle out there in the East. But in the West... Ulysses Grant's regiment attacked a large Confederate outpost, Fort Donaldson, in northwest Tennessee, and they won. And a newspaper sketch artist drew a rendering of what at that time was Lieutenant Grant, and he was on horseback, and he's smoking a cigar. And the nation was so grateful in the north that a battle had actually been won that people saw that picture, that sketch in the newspaper. And so cigars began pouring into Ulysses Grant, all right? And he got 5,000 cigars as a gift from the grateful public in the North. And so he began to smoke 20 cigars a day. Can you imagine throughout the war? Then he became president. He didn't really slow down that much. In October of 1884, he went to the doctor complaining that his throat hurt. And the doctor said, you have an inoperable tumor in your throat, throat cancer. He was in incredible pain. He said drinking a glass of water was like drinking molten lead. And he died of throat cancer in July of 1885. So sad. Were the cigars sinful? Were they evil? No. The cigars were a gift from a grateful nation. They were a good thing, but I'm sure that no one ever dreamed, hey, I'm going to send U.S. Grant cigars. He's going to smoke 20 a day. You know, no one thought that would happen. What if U.S. Grant had said to himself, you know what, I'm going to smoke two a day like I always have, and these will last me a lifetime. But because of something in him, he lost control, and that which was good produced death a few years later. I want you to think about this. God is altogether good. And in his goodness, God gives us his law. And it is a gift. It is a gift. But then sin takes this good law, stimulates our our flesh, and it awakens within us this desire to be the captain of our soul, the master of our own fate. And it manipulates us into deviating from God's good law. And then death follows. And sin proves itself to be Utterly sinful. What Paul means, death is its only objective. And so the pattern works something like this. There's a stimulation that comes from the law. Then there's a manipulation of the law. Then there's a deviation from the law. And then there's a devastation that always follows. And you might be thinking, well, how is that fair or just? The death penalty for just disobeying God. Imagine there's a soldier at a military base not too far away. He's really hot-headed. He loves to fight. He gets upset at one of his fellow soldiers in the barracks and he runs, rushes at him, and he hits him in the jaw. He gets three days in the brig. A few weeks later, he gets upset at his drill sergeant and he hits him in the jaw. Three weeks in the brig for you, soldier. But he doesn't learn. Later that year, he gets upset at an officer and he rushes at him. He hits him. He says, Son, you're getting three months in Leavenworth. You're like, No, we got to get this guy out of the military. He says, No, he's such a fighter. He's such a good soldier. We got to keep him. And so he gets stationed at a base in an active war zone. It's Thanksgiving. And the president makes a surprise visit to their base. And the president's up there and he's pouring it on thick. He's giving a speech. He can't stand the president. And as the president is speaking, he is angrier and angrier, and he doesn't want to do it, but finally he can't help himself. He jumps up and he starts running toward the president and the Secret Service agents shoot him. Boom, he drops dead. In each case, he's doing the same thing. He's hitting another man. But there's a catch. As the dignity and authority of the person he attacks increases, so does the severity of the punishment. David said this in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and only against you. And you are right in judging me. You are justified in condemning me. All sin, all of our sin is rebellion against God. And it's an attack on God's dignity and his authority in our lives. We know the consequences, but we're just compelled to, to defy our creator. And do you ever wonder why we're helpless to resist this kind of chain reaction between sin and law? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it is sin which gives death its power and the law that gives sin its strength. And now look at verse 14 through 20. Paul says things like this. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I think the law is good, but it's no longer I myself doing it. Sin living in me is doing this. For I, what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And as I mentioned a moment ago, notice all the verbs are in the present tense. So he's describing to you and me his experience at the time he's writing this letter to the Romans. And when he says the law is spiritual, he means it comes from God. It reflects God's nature. God's law also deals with our spiritual selves. It goes to the very heart of my being. But then he says, I am unspiritual, which means of the flesh. Some of you might have the word carnal there in your Bible. By the way, when you go out to eat and you go to a Mexican food restaurant, and you order Carne asada, it literally means roasted flesh. Tell your kids that, they'll order that every time, all right? But anytime we see the word flesh there, our minds typically go to things that are sensual or sexual. But flesh is all of our propensities, all of our passions that run contrary to God, contrary to the new nature of God's Holy Spirit that's within us. This is true not only in the area of sex or food, but also money and work, sobriety. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Galatians chapter five, Paul said this, the actions of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, rivalry, jealousy, anger, quarrels, conflicts, factions, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild partying and things like that. It sounds like Washington DC, doesn't it? Why is Washington DC such a mess? Because we don't have spiritual people in places of power. Ladies and gentlemen, we go to vote this uh, in a couple of years. We got to vote in people who are going to walk in the spirit. We need the spirit of God in the leadership of our nation. The spirit of God is what's needed there. Right now, all we have is the flesh. And so, yeah, envy, factions, drunkenness, immorality. We have all those things because we have almost exclusively people who walk in the flesh, leading this great nation, which hasn't been the case in the past. So what's the word, what's flesh mean? The flesh is a compulsive inner force inherited from man's fall, which expresses itself in a defiance to God and his righteousness that makes it impossible for a natural man or woman to genuinely love, serve, and glorify God. Now, when you read that, you might automatically think, well, that means my body is evil. No, that's not what we're saying. I need to hate my body, punish my body, you know, mortify my body. People have thought that over the Christian centuries. The Bible tells you that God loves your body. God wants your body. He's going to resurrect it someday, and he's filled it with his Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You now, before we knew Christ, there was no struggle between flesh and spirit, but now there is. And I want to really emphasize this today. If you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking about a sin that you're struggling with and you're going to war with, thank the good Lord for the struggle. The struggle is a sign of salvation. As I said before, an unbeliever leaps into sin and loves it there, whereas a believer, a Christian, lapses into sin and then loathes it. So yes, the struggle with sin is real. You and I have spent years building habits neural pathways that were perfectly natural, unspiritual. And it's difficult for these old habits, these old ways of thinking, these old ways of responding to the world around us to be changed. We spent years of our lives building these thought processes and some of them can be very, very stubborn. And we try to change them and they're not gonna go down without a fight. Look at verse 15 where Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You know, my uh, younger son, Brady, had a rock band when he was in college, and they had a lot of success. They wrote some really good music. I was really proud of him. But I told him, I said, I really want you to sit down with me. I want to write a song about codependency. And it's called, I Hate You, Please Don't Leave. <laughs> all right? I really wanted to write that. it would be a great song. I Hate You, Please Don't Leave Me. We all have a toxic, codependent relationship with sin and flesh. We all have things like this in our lives. We hate it, but we don't want it to leave. Just like the Israelites when they left Egypt, you know, they they wanted to go back to slavery. Can we go back to the turnips and the leeks and the onions that we used to eat? We're so tired of all this honey-flavored bread called manna. Oh, come on, really? Sin has greater strength in our flesh, and it causes us to do things that we are resolved not to do. Even though I am determined not to do something, when I get in certain circumstances, my determination just melts away. My resolve disappears. And Paul says, I end up doing what I promised myself I would not do. You ever felt that way? Yeah, I gotta say, uh, just being really honest with you, you know, I I think one thing that really popped up in my mind when I was thinking about this and more recently in my life is just, the way I acted at ball games with my kids, you know, I, I was just, I was a maniac and I was just out of control. I can remember after, you know, ball games, especially basketball, man, like, you know, you're right there at the court, you know, and your kids are out there running around and you start, you know, yelling and screaming. And I would just turn into a wild man. I was like, man, I'm a pastor. I got to pull it together. You know, I'm going to lose my ministry. I was bad. I was bad. And I can remember, yeah, football games too. Yeah, I got some of the guys that played football with been here. Football games, I was awful, but you couldn't hear me as well because <laughs> I was farther away from the action, you know. But I, I remember several times, you know, really, you know, kind of wounded my kids just because I get so out of control. And I remember, you know, you know what I did one time? Here was my idea. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go there and I'm going to promise myself I won't say anything, unless it's encouraging, unless I'm encouraging somebody. And then the referee would make a bad call. Hey, that was a great call, ref. Yeah, way to go. You're amazing. You're amazing. You really are. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> just get out of control again. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I just, it was such a battle for me. It really was. You know what I had to do? I had to dig into my deep heart because I saw that I was wounding my kids. I was like, Lord, why am I this way? And God had to show me some things about my own self and some pent-up anger and frustration that I had that I had to deal with. I'd to confess to him and get right with him about that. And, you know, I can tell you, you know, it, it kind of gradually began to dissipate. And fortunately, my kids finished their athletic career, so that sin is gone. I don't have to worry about it anymore, <laughs> okay? My point being that our willpower is not enough to win the war within. You want to do what's right, determine what's right. You know what it is. You're swearing not to do it. But you find that in certain circumstances, your determination just melts away. And if you're like me, you get really angry with yourself. Like, what's the matter with me? Why can't I change? Why can't I do right? Why am I so weak? Look at what Paul says. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. My sinful flesh, Satan is using sin to, to stimulate and manipulate so that I'll deviate, so that he can devastate. See, as human beings, we are incredibly, incredibly complex and complicated creatures, vastly more sophisticated in our existence than anyone can grasp. And Paul is telling you and me there's a dark power within us with the characteristics of a living thing, and it lies dormant until God's commandments are heard and understood, and then it springs to life and to manipulate and, and deceive, and we do what we do not want to do. And so I just want to say this as we kind of finish up today. Simple, materialistic solutions are not going to win this war. Like, I'm determined to do better. I'm going to change my environment. I'm going to set some goals, and I'm going to write them down. You know, I'm going to write them down this year. Now, look at this verse of Scripture. Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not those of the flesh, but they are weapons that are made powerful by God. Moses had a walking stick that split an ocean. Gideon defeated a massive army with clay jars that had torches in them. David slew Goliath, the world's first weapon of mass destruction, with five rocks, which really is only one rock. These simple, humble things were made powerful by God. That is still true today. God takes the simple and the humble and he makes them powerful. And so this week, I want to talk to you about the first weapon of our warfare. The rest are going to follow next week. But that weapon of our warfare is community. Christians gathering in small groups to build each other up in their holy faith. Hebrews chapter 10, let us think of one another, not ourselves, and how we can encourage each other to love and do good deeds. And let us not hold aloof from our church meetings as some do. Let us do all we can to help one another's faith and more earnestly as we see the final day drawing near. That's sort of such a powerful, powerful exhortation from God's word. You know, there are 60 statements in the New Testament that have the phrase one another in them. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, build up one another, this first Thessalonians, accept one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be kind and compassionate to one another. In fact, if you read your New Testament, it's like the primary objective of you and me as we are followers of Jesus is a new verb, one anothering, you know, that's what we're really all about is one anothering. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for being here this morning. But think about this. When you're sitting in rows, like in this big metal tube, all right, it's really hard to one another each other. It really is. And if the majority of our focus as a church is like herding people into this big metal tube and sitting them in rows, we won't be the church. We can't have one anothering if we're sitting in rows, Sitting quietly listening. Thank you for that. Lecture, this is a lecture, is the very first part of the spiritual growth process. Absolutely. But then you have to go from lecture to life on life at some point in your journey. And how does that happen in a home setting? you know that for the first 350 years of church history, this thing we call church never owned a building. It was done exclusively at homes. And Christianity spread like wildfire across a prairie, all the way from Jerusalem into Northern Europe and all the way to China and India. Now this is the setting in the home where we can build one another up and be built up. We can one another, one another. And so God's pattern is this, is to always take the simple and make it powerful, always. And so when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, meeting together as my followers, I am there among them. And so I just want to finish with this appeal to you today. Now, I don't know what your schedule is like, and I don't know what you have going on, things like that. But would you seriously pray about and consider that if you're not a part of a smaller group of Christians who meet together for life on life, talking, discussing, teaching one another, encouraging one another, building one another up in their holy faith, if you're not part of that through a faith Bible study, or a home group, would you pray about that today? Pray about that today. You know, back in the back corner, there's a display that Gina's made, it's beautiful. There's some QR codes on those cards. Go back, uh, scan those codes, check that out. There's an insert in your bulletin. Uh, There's uh, all the staff are here. Uh, We're all ready to talk about this, but we really want you to be in community. Why? Because community is weapon number one, weapon number one in the war within. It makes such a difference in all of our lives. It strengthens us so much. And so, yes, in, with our adults, with our students, and with our children, we're trying to get our folks into smaller groups where we can have life on life, building one another up, teaching one another, encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good works. Let's bow our heads together this morning. The heads bowed and eyes closed. We just have one objective today. And that is that you would seriously pray about your life in that group setting, that smaller group setting. Do you have that? Are you doing that? Are you actively participating in that? Is that a part of the architecture of your spiritual life today? And can I just tell you that if you're going to fight the good fight and finish the race that God has given you, it needs to be. It needs to be. When the dust settles and the smoke clears, if you are firmly committed to another small group of believers and you have that kind of authentic biblical fellowship, when the the dust settles and the smoke clears, you will still be standing. I I would make you that guarantee. You'll still be standing. And so I want to ask you to really pray about that this morning. Really think about that this morning. Is that truly a part of your life? And you may be in a home group, you may be in a small group, you may be in a faith Bible study, but are you one of those people that is really striving to turn that small group into an authentic biblical fellowship where you do all those one another's? Not just sitting around talking about the weather, talking about the cowboys, things like that, but you're really trying to do the one anothering to one another. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's let's take that to the Lord today and speak to him about it. And I'll I'll pray and close us out this morning. And Lord, we do want to fight this battle that you've already won and fight it well, fight it with real strength. And so, Lord, we need each other. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would move in our hearts today to give us, Father, a real, a real passion, Father, for this. Grand vision of what it means to be one another to one another. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would just move in our hearts and our minds today, Father, just to give us that, that holy motivation, Father, to do what blesses you, what pleases you, and glorifies you in our daily and weekly lives. We just love you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for all you've given us, that you take the simple and the humble and make it powerful. So thank you for that Jesus.